This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This is a science podcast for April 1st, 2022. I'm Sarah Kresge. Each week, we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up, staff writer Paul Vucin. We discuss Earth's mysterious inner core and how it might have saved life on Earth. Next, researcher Adam Filippi talks with me about the most complete human genome to date. Using new technology, the Telomere to Telomere Consortium was able to fill in about 8% of the human genome that had never been completely sequenced before. We've talked on the show before about how what's going on in the Earth's core protects life on this planet. The magnetic field generated in the inner core of our planet protects us from all kinds of life-threatening radiation. But what if the core stopped doing that? Well, it looks like we did almost lose our dynamo half a billion years ago. Staff news writer Paul Vucin wrote about it this week in Science. Hi, Paul. Hello. Not my dynamo. I definitely need that where I live. <laughs> yeah, we, we pretty much need it everywhere you're out of the water. Yeah. There's so much we don't know about this super deep interior of the planet, including the fact that maybe there wasn't always an inner core. What was there before? Before, it was just all molten iron. It used to be people thought that we have good evidence that the magnetic field existed for you know, nearly all of Earth's history. So they thought, well, you know, probably there was an inner core for a long time. Just the, the outer core, what we now call the outer core, that was the whole core. And movement in that, that's what generates the magnetic field, the movement of this magnetic iron. But that's all depends on how much heat escapes from the planet. And there's modeling that suggests as the heat starts to wane, you can lose the ability to generate a magnetic field unless something else comes around. So if your whole core solidified, the iron's not moving around anymore when it's like crystallizing or anything like that, you're going to get a big dumb magnet in the center, but not a dynamo. It wouldn't even solidify. Oh, really? It would just be molten, but it would have lost enough heat that it's not moving. It's just easily shunting heat out. So how do we know that there was this dramatic moment so far in the past where our dynamo almost went away? We probably don't. This is all kind of very emerging research. So we once thought the inner core was much older. Through studies of how much heat is conducted through iron, people realized, oh, the inner core 
is likely younger because iron's conducting heat so fast that if it was any older, it would be much bigger than what it is. That led to the idea of, well, can we see the signature of the magnetic field of the inner core forming? And so there's been some work suggesting looking at rocks from 500 something million years ago, first showing that the magnetic field at 10% of the strength today, there aren't a lot of records from this period. There's better records later and earlier, but there's just this gap for some reason. And partly it could be because it was waning and so it wasn't getting recorded very well and like noisy and confusing. So this team from one of the leading paleomagnetism labs have seen this 10% signal. And now just at a recent meeting reported that they found, I think it was tens of millions of years later, found the field kicking up in strength which they attribute to the formation of the inner core. So basically, there was a huge decline in the magnetic field emanating from the center of the Earth, and it came on, and this may have been when the inner core was forming, kind of getting more solid. But it also correlates with other things happening on the surface of the planet. This is, you know, a really critical time in the evolution of life. You're just getting close to what's called the Cambrian explosion when life just starts proliferating all different forms. Before that were some like microbes and jellyfish in the ocean. So if the magnetic field had continued to wane, it would not have necessarily found these balmy conditions, you know, above the water. But since it kicked in, it could have provided this protective shield just as maybe 100 million years later, life first started to really emerge. Thanks, Core. (laughs) So this is just one of the big question marks around the inner core. When did it form and what was the impact of the inner core's formation on life on the planet? There's also been a lot of back and forth about how the inner core spins and is that rate different from what's going on on different parts of the planet? Is it faster or is it slower? Is it changing over time? How can we tell how fast the core is spinning and why is there so much debate about it? Yeah. So, you know, like most things about the center of the earth or interior of the earth, use earthquakes primarily to, not me, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) the expert scientists who do this use earthquakes that can do one of two things. They can pass through the inner core and come out the other side, or they can ricochet off it and collect that reflection like radar. And 30 years ago, there are some big results, science, nature, kind of that showed that taking earthquakes from the same general area generated over different decades, there's a change in their speed of how fast they traveled through the inner core. And that kind of suggested that they had moved into these fast lanes that are known to exist there and sped up. And that said, hey, it seems like the inner core is rotating a little bit faster than the mantle and you know the rest of the earth. But that story is now changing. Right. So maybe it's not actually faster than the rest of the earth. Maybe it is sometimes, and then sometimes it's not. So there's (laughs) been several folks who originally put out these results have new results that they've just presented showing that in one case, it looks like it just stopped rotating faster 10 years ago, where it is now aligned with the speed of the rest of the planet after it was rotating faster. And another case, there's evidence to suggest in the late 60s, early 70s, using uh, underground nuclear bomb test signals to show that it was actually rotating slower than the mantle and crust of the Earth. Are the researchers able to sort out if this is changes in how they're measuring or changes in the behavior of the inner core? I mean, I think there's good 
suggestion that this is, these are real, but what it means is still kind of going to be pieced together. And these results aren't published yet. They're presented and there's this complex interaction that can happen where you have the inner core, which is not uniformly distributed at the surface and it can gravitationally interact with these kind of lumpy, these blobs that are in the bottom of the Earth's mantle that are mm -hmm. also seen. Like you have these structures that can gravitationally pull each other around. The electromagnetic field is also interacting in funny ways. And so you can have this start and stop type of tugging. I was super surprised that the inner core, the solid iron inner core is not just a sphere. This was not a smooth ball. I don't know why. Nothing is a smooth ball, but it's not. It's bumpy. It has hills. They're not Everest, but they, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like global sea level where you're going to get small variations and there is no uniform sea level. Mm -hmm. Do we know if it's cyclical or what might cause it to change its rotation compared to the rest of the Earth? That's still an open question. Yeah, that's still pretty open. There are these different theories of that involves either some sort of electromagnetic tug from the outer core to the inner core or how these are all coupled together. There's a lot of different models for it, but really what's going on has not been divided now with this kind of new data. I think that will be the next step. Yeah. Let's go even deeper, Paul. <laughs> even <laughs> deeper into the inner, inner core. There is maybe a structure inside this structure. What were the first hints that there might be something else inside the inner core? This was about 20 years ago. This was seen again with earthquakes where these little fast lanes that go through the inner core that speed up things. When they travel through the very center of the Earth, they don't seem to perfectly align with the rest of the inner core. And that suggested this innermost inner core. And then a few studies, one just came out, another coming out soon, are going to validate that this does exist. How big is the inner inner core compared to the inner core? Estimates vary. I mean, you can just think of it as the little nugget center of the inner core. What do we know about this inner core? We know that it has a fast lane. And is that pretty much it? This is the innermost inner core? You're talking yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> turtles upon turtles upon turtles. Exactly. There's another <laughs> sphere in there. You know it. You know it. Uh, okay. So really very, very little is known about it. Yeah. One thought could be that there are kind of two possible phases of iron that could constitute the inner core. Maybe it started forming one way in one phase and then shifted over to a different phase. You know, question of how all the iron crystals are aligning and that changed, or is it something about the original formation story? No one knows. Well, we aren't going to get to touch on so many mysteries that you discuss in your story, but let's just mention a few in passing and tell people to read it. What are some of the other big questions that people who study the inner, inner part of the earth are looking at? One promising area we haven't really talked about much is that we have these different experimental setups that you know, it's really hard to create the conditions of the inner core. You're talking above 6,000 degrees Kelvin and 3 million times the atmospheric pressure on the surface. So you have these diamond anvil presses that like squeeze tiny bits of iron and heat them up at the same time. But the carbon gets so hot that the carbon in the diamond can actually contaminate the iron. But those are getting better with better x-ray sources that can zip in there and see what's going on before they get contaminated. There are also setups where you fire something 10 times the speed of a bullet, create this shock wave of pressure and heat, and you kind of see what happens. Especially in China, there are setups of those happening right now. And scientists even use the National Ignition Facility 
here in the U.S., which is usually used to simulate nuclear explosions to try and recreate inner core conditions. So it's we're finally starting to get in the lab to create the inner core, not just the outer core. And what else are you keeping an eye on? One thing is we've had more seismic stations be established, especially in Antarctica, where you have this kind of pathway. This north-south pathway is critical for understanding the inner core because that's where these weird seismic fast lanes exist in it. And as you get more stations and get better global coverage of seismic stations, your people are starting to be able to do tomography of this you know, CT scan imaging of the inner core in a way that they haven't ever been able to do. They've only been able to do that with the mantle still early stages of that, but we're in like the 1980s of the mantle, <laughs> but they're starting to see these structures. And I think very soon the real structure of the inner core is going to come into better view. All right. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Paul Busen is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with researcher Adam Filippi about the most complete human genome sequence to date and what we can learn from such precise mapping. Before we get to the next part of the show, I'd like you to consider subscribing to News from Science. Every week, we share stories from our news site, News from Science. Science journalists and editors kindly come on here and tell a story for our ears that they've been spending sometimes weeks or even months reporting and writing. If we were counting, our award-winning journalists publish as many as 20 stories a week, from tracking policy to investigations, international science news, and yes, when we find new secrets about mummies, we report on that too. It's an unbelievably valuable service. If you were here with us during early COVID days, you must have heard how plugged in and devoted our news team truly is. Please consider supporting nonprofit science journalism by becoming a subscriber for around 50 cents a week. To subscribe, go to science.org news, scroll down a little bit, and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news, scroll down a little bit, click subscribe on the right side. The human genome was sequenced around 20 years ago to the best of our abilities at the time. This week in science, the Telomere to Telomere Consortium has published the most complete human genome to date, adding 200 megabases of genetic information, practically a whole chromosome's worth of additional sequencing. Adam Filippi is here to talk about the effort. Hi, Adam. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. I'm super excited to talk about what's been missing all this time. Well, the most exciting part of this project to me was in, in many ways, we didn't have a full picture of what was missing. So we knew that the original reconstruction was incomplete, but we didn't know precisely how much was missing and what exactly was there. So it was that aspect of discovery that got me really interested in this project at the outset. But from past cytogenetic studies, you know, looking down the microscope at the chromosomes, we could see material that was there and roughly estimated size. There had been some great studies even going back to the 80s and 70s where people would attach probes to the DNA and try to see what was there. But nobody had really been able to sequence these regions at the base level, get every A, C, G, and T worked out. A lot of these areas were missing from earlier sequences because of technological constraints. 
What has changed that makes the genome more accessible today? The original public human genome project in the late 90s, early 2000s was relying on a technique called back-based sequencing, where they would cut pieces of the human genome out and clone it into bacterial artificial chromosomes and then sequence from there. That process has some limitations. It's difficult to clone very repetitive stretches of DNA like the satellites that are in and around the centromeres and other regions. And the sequencing technology at the time, commonly referred to as Sanger sequencing, could only get maybe 500 to 1,000 nucleotides per sequencing read. And that makes it very hard, just like you're putting a puzzle together with very small pieces, to put the genome back together when all of those reads are very small. And so the biggest change within the last decade has been the emergence of so-called long-read sequencing technology, either from Pacific Biosciences or Oxford Nanopore, that can read now 10,000, 100,000, even a million bases at a time. And so our puzzle pieces just got way bigger, and that allowed us to put these regions of the genome back together again. Very cool. Yeah, especially if it's repetitive DNA, where it just goes on and on three letters over and over again. How are you going to figure out where that meets up with the next piece if your pieces are all real short? Yeah, exactly. The example I've been giving recently is, you know, a puzzle of a honeycomb where every little piece looks like a cell of the honeycomb, but you don't know which part it came from. Yeah. And that's kind of like the repeats in the genome, these new repeats that we've recovered so-called tandem repeats, where it's a unit, but then it's repeated many thousands of times in tandem, making it very difficult to reconstruct. And these are really important parts of the genome, despite the fact that it doesn't sound like it's going to code for a protein. It has functions that we really care about. Yeah, so the alpha satellites in and around the human centromeres are obviously critically important for cell division, as anyone learns in basic biology class. But also in and around these satellites, there's repetitive so-called segmental duplications, which are actually quite gene-rich. And they tend to associate around these satellite sequences. And they themselves, while not necessarily a tandem repeat like this, are also scattered throughout the genome and very similar, you know, 99% similar or greater. And those two were left unresolved on some of these regions near the centromeres and on the short arms of the acrocentric chromosomes. Another difference between this project and the earlier Human Genome Project is the source material, the genome being sequenced. How is the T2T genome that we're talking about today different from 20 years ago? It actually is a very unique part of this project, the material that we began with. It's a special type of cell line called a complete hydatidiform mole. And these result from a a non-viable pregnancy where you have an egg that has lost its maternal genome fertilized by a sperm, and that sperm has a haploid genome. That haploid genome somehow spontaneously duplicates and grows as this mass, which has to be removed. The cells of that mass are unlike a normal human cell where we have a copy from your mom and a copy from your dad. These cells have basically identical copies for each chromosome of that haploid sperm's genome. And as a result, there's no differences between the two copies of each of the chromosomes. And that made this project simpler in many ways. We didn't have to worry about reconstructing two genomes or the two haplotypes. And it also gives you more material because for every chromosome you're sequencing, each cell has two copies of it. So it kind of reduces the cost and complexity of the project. And how is that different than what was used for the Human Genome Project? That original genome, you know, came from multiple volunteers. I forget the exact number. And so the current reference, commonly called GRCH38 or HG38, It's actually a mosaic of multiple individuals that are stitched together, whereas this genome is a single haplotype. 
Let's get into what exactly was gained by doing this additional sequencing. You mentioned that there are coding regions. It's not just repetitive DNA. Here you found protein coding regions of the genome that weren't sequenced before. Yeah. The one clarification that I would like to make sometimes when people talk about repeats, they think almost like exclusively it's either a repeat or a gene, but not both. But many genes are repeats and vice versa and typically referred to as paralogs. And so these are genes that are copied throughout the genome and they exist in multiple copies. They all kind of originate from a single original copy at some point in evolutionary history. But as they're copied throughout the genome and kind of undergo continued evolution, they can differ slightly from one another. So they're not identical copies. They differ by a very small amount. And they're so similar that it's been very difficult to accurately resolve all of these subtle differences and variations between the copies. And so in some cases, we're talking about 20 plus copies of a gene, and each of those copies is subtly different from one another. And those are the types of genes that we're finding in these segmentally duplicated regions of the genome, and we're able to now accurately identify the subtle differences between them. What will be interesting going forward is to understand if those subtle differences, you know, have any functional consequence. This does seem to be one mechanism of evolution, right? You make another version of the gene, you change it a little bit, and now you got two different proteins or two different things happening from that same original DNA sequence. Yeah, exactly. And these regions of the genome that are highly repetitive are also very dynamic. They have a lot of structural variation and other variation between individuals and between humans and our relative primates. And so because these regions are so dynamic and kind of changing so rapidly, there's some hope that any of the clues to what makes humans uniquely human in terms of cognition, increased brain size, et cetera, might have some connection to these regions that we've uncovered here. Very cool. Some of the highlights from this consortium are actually published as separate papers. A few of the papers focus on transcription, epigenetics, kind of annotating this more complete genome. What is looking at this level of analysis, doing epigenetic analysis on a more complete genome get us? What do we learn that we couldn't learn before from that? Well, if we talk again about the paralogs, these new gene copies that we've uncovered, we know that there's epigenetic so-called silencing, where if some of the genes want to be turned off and not expressed, they can undergo a different epigenetic modification that will repress them. By having all of these paralogs recovered and very clearly now seeing the epigenetic profiles across them, we get a better picture of what an active and an inactive paralog looks like. And in the epigenetic paper led by Winston Timps Group and Ariel Gershman, they cataloged that kind of across these different segmentally duplicated genes, as well as in Evan Eichler and Mitchell Volger's paper on the segmental duplications, and are able to show you now the differences between kind of an active and an inactive paralog in some of these very recent segmental duplications. What does that tell us? Well, in cases where that goes wrong, where an epigenetic profile might be different on one of these paralogs and all of a sudden it's being expressed, that could lead to cancer or some other dysfunction of the genome. So being able to measure the epigenetic profile now across the entire genome leaves no stone unturned. We can now see what's happening um, on all of these important genomic regions. And it also leads us to the second theme that I pulled out, which is this idea that the new genome sequence will help us better understand human genetic diversity. Even though this is a sequence from a single genome, it can still do that. Can you talk about how? We can now catalog all of the variants. That's the first thing across the entire genome. Second, 
We've shown in the variance analysis paper led by Mike Schatz and others that it's a more accurate reference sequence. And so when you're taking a new genome and mapping it against this, you have fewer false positive variants that are being called. And so that gives you a clearer picture. And we showed that across genomes of all different ancestries. No matter who you map against this reference genome, you have kind of a, a lower rate of false positive variant calls. But I think more importantly going forward is that this is still just one haplotype, one genome, and it does not capture the full variation that we know exists in the human population on Earth. But it can serve as basically a backbone now as we build out the so-called pan-genome. We're attempting to sequence many more genomes rather than this one. And because we spent all of the hard work at the outset getting this one complete and correct, we can now start to layer on these additional genomes on top of it and do a so-called pan-genome representation that will have this as a basis, but then have all of the variation kind of branching off of it and allow us to represent that more accurately and correctly. Now, do you see that as small pieces of other genomes being done to this level of detail, or this is now a framework for how many other genomes can be sequenced to this you know, full extent? I think it's a bit of both. In the near term, it'll be not necessarily T to T, not necessarily fully complete genomes aligned to and layered on top of this reference. But long term, definitely where we want to head is to make every genome a complete T to T reference. And as I've said, kind of the ultimate solution to what's the human reference genome is to just make every genome a reference. You know, at birth, you get your full diploid genome, perfectly accurate, perfectly complete. And you carry that with you in your, your medical journey for the rest of your life. I want to point out that this is not an easy thing to do, despite the leap in technology over the past 20 years. We really shouldn't diminish how much work it was to do this. Do you think it'll get easier as, the, as time goes by? I'm really optimistic because my career started in the early 2000s. And so I've really ridden the wave of technology and genome sequencing and genomics over the past 20 years. It's just never ceased to amaze me how rapidly things improve, costs decrease, etc. And it's really been exponential ever since I started in this field. And it's showing no sign of stopping. And so, you know, if I look back 10 years ago at my ability to predict what would be happening 10 years from then, I was always really terrible and thought things would take way longer than they actually did. <laughs> and so I'm trying to kind of adjust my viewpoint now, remembering that and thinking, yeah, maybe it's only going to be another few years, maybe five years at most until we can routinely get perfectly accurate diploid human genomes for a few thousand dollars. And at that point, there's no reason not to do it because there's so much added value that comes along with it. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Adam Filippi is a senior investigator and head of the Genome Informatics section at the NIH's National Human Genome Research Institute. You can find a link to the paper we discussed, related research, and commentary at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.